you want to know how to become a Christian, the book of Acts is certainly a great book to turn to. There are other New Testament books that are helpful, but I think in most people's mind, the book of Acts is the first book that would come to our mind on how to become a Christian. But if you ask the question, why become a Christian, the book of Romans is the book for you. And especially Romans chapter 8. While other books deal with why become a Christian, none does so with the thoroughness and the power of the book of Romans. And Romans 8, in particular, helps with that question and its answer. Any chapter that begins with no condemnation, Romans 8.1, continues with no complications in Romans 8.28, and ends with no separation in Romans 8.35-39, through 39, that gives us a lot of motivation and incentive to become children of God. Now look, if you will, at the 39 verses of Romans chapter 8. These lessons today will be the final lessons in our study of this chapter. But notice, if you will, yet again, that the key word of Romans 8, 1 through 17 is life. In Jesus there is life. Life. That's the key to the first 17 verses. Why become a Christian? I'll tell you why. Because one who's not in Christ is condemned and will suffer death eternally. That's what Romans 8, 1 through 17 really get at. But when you look at the next section, Romans 8, 18 through 30, the word to remember is the word glory. Glory. One who's not in Christ is in sin and is fallen or lost. That's the idea of Romans 8, 18 through 30. Why be a Christian? Because if you're not in Christ, you are fallen in sin and lost. The opposite of glory. And when you look at verses 31 through 39, the word to remember is assurance. It doesn't occur one single time specifically in any translation that I'm aware of in Romans 8, 31 through 39. But there can be no question that's what this section is about. Assurance. The buoyant confidence that we can have that we will be with God forever. Why be a Christian? I want the buoyant confidence that I can be with God forever. Don't you? And when we think about the opposite of that, a person who's not in Christ will know judgment and separation. Not assurance, but judgment and separation. Why be a Christian? The Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gives us some real motivation in this chapter. Now look, if you will, especially at 18, 
and following through 30. Look at that section because we're wrapping this section up today as we'll study 28 through 30 and then tonight 31 through 39. But when we look at this section, we learn about the real world. What about the here and now? What about real-time living? It can be hard to be a Christian. It can be difficult. It was true in the first century and it's true in the 21st. But when you look at this section, let me break it down. 18 through 21 of Romans chapter 8. 18 through 21 of Romans chapter 8 says we will have to deal with suffering, yet glory awaits. We'll have to deal with suffering, yet glory awaits. And he says... The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Oh, the temporary versus the eternal. Oh, the light versus the beautiful and precious and foreverness of glory with God. Now look at verses 22 through 25. We'll live here, right here in the here and now. We will have to deal with suffering, but glory awaits. You can count on it. Their saving hope, verses 22 through 25. Our hope rests on what Jesus has done and our response to the gospel in loving obedience. They're saving hope. I can live in the here and now. I know that I will suffer, but glory awaits. I can live in the here and now because I have a saving hope on the basis of what Jesus did at the cross and on the basis of my response to His gospel. Look at verses 26 and 27. In real time, there's help in prayer. In the here and now, there's help in prayer. There's help in our weakness. There's help in understanding that we do not know how to pray as we ought. And this passage gives us assurance and confidence that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. It's not something that the Holy Spirit does to us. It's something that the Holy Spirit does for us. And how grateful we should be. There are times we do not know what God's will is. There are times that we think we do and it turns out maybe we were wrong. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. Now look at this, number 4, from verse 28. There's the special providence of God. We can live in the here and now, in real-time living in a real world, and we can do so with a great outlook Because God always has our best interest at heart. That's what Romans 8.28 really gets at. God has our best interest always at heart. 
For those of us that are parents, you ever thought that you had your children's best interest at heart? Certainly good parents want to be motivated because they have the best interest of their children at heart. How much more our God has our best interest at heart. And whatever Romans 8.28 means, it has to revolve around that truth. God always has our best interest at heart. And then when you look at the the two verses that follow, verses 29 and 30 that Danny read for us as part of the scripture reading this morning, verses 29 and 30 are about this. There's confidence that we can have in God's eternal purpose. Right now, in the present. You know, some people love to live in the past. Some people are very future focused. But Scripture gives us a proper view of the past, a proper view of the present, and a glorious view of the future so that we are able to live with the past in the present and in eager anticipation of the future. What a great chapter Romans 8 is. The section that we're talking about, Romans 8, 18-30, begins with glory, mentioned in verse 18. And it ends with glory. Those that He justified, He glorified. Romans 8 and verse 30. Now we're ready to look at verse 28 a little more thoroughly, and then verses 29 and 30. Guarantees of glory. Guarantees of glory. Romans 8, 28 through 30 are. The the first guarantee is we have the assurance of the special providence of God. We have the assurance of the special providence of God. That God provides and cares for His people in a special way. Notice verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. The King James rendering of that particular passage. When you look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28... There's five unassailable convictions Paul has about God's providence. Let me share them with you. You have the certainty of God's providence. And we know. Interestingly enough, he had just said a little earlier, we do not know how to pray as we ought. But we do know that God always has our best interest at heart. We do know that He has a special care and provision for His children. And we know. He doesn't say we think, we wish, or we'd like to believe. 
He says it so matter-of-factly that it rebukes our lack of trust in God. When you think about what Paul, who penned this, went through in his own life as a Christian, Paul can sincerely and wholeheartedly say, it's a matter of conviction, I would rather die than deny this truth. We know all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. Keep looking at the passage. You've got the certainty of God's providence. You also have the scope of God's providence. Secondly, all things. It would have done me a lot more good and made it easier for me to believe if Paul had just said, we know most things turn out. Many things turn out for good. But he causes me to do some very honest reflection and evaluation Because the scope of God's providence concerns all things. In a context that deals with suffering, Romans 8, 17 and 18, and with groaning, Romans 8, 22 and 23. I want you to understand this. Romans 8, 28 does not say God causes all things. Romans 8.28 does not say that tragedy and evil are good things. Romans 8.28 doesn't say if you just had more faith, things would work out for the best. Romans 8.28 says that God always has our best interest at heart. We can be certain of that. And the scope has to do with all things. A number of years ago, a man lost his son. His son died. And the man was so devastated... He went to his preacher and asked, Where was God when my son died? And the preacher was at a loss for a moment. But he finally said, I guess in the same place he was when he lost his own son. Think about that one. God always has our best interest at heart, even when it costs the life of His own dear Son. You continue looking at Romans 8 28, all things work. You have the action of God's providence. The action. Work. The energy. Work together. You have the harmony of God's providence. And the idea is somehow that God is able to reshape and redirect 
even our groans and our sufferings and our hurts because He has our best interest at heart. And then you see the conditional nature of God's providence to them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. To them that love the Lord. That's somewhat rare in the Apostle Paul's writings. Normally, Paul speaks of God's love for us, like in Romans 5 and verse 8. And later on in this chapter, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 37-39. But here, those that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. Those who have looked to the cross of Christ and responded to the gospel of Jesus in faith and repentance and baptism, responding to God's grace. They are described as those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. While God blesses and provides for the world, generally speaking... There is a special providence God exercises concerning His people. This statement, all things work together for good, is not a blanket statement for everybody. It's conditional. It's to those that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. And while I'm grateful that God blesses the world, I am extremely grateful that God provides and cares in a special way for us as Christians. Aren't you? Now let me take this statement and reword it. Romans 8.28, because I really believe that the beginning of the sentence, God should come first. The New American Standard Bible, for example, has it that way, and so do a few others. Here's how the five unshakable convictions come down if you look at it this way. God works for the good. God works for the good in all things of those who love Him and are the called. God works For the good in all things of those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. Sometimes, Kirk, you can just kind of look at a passage from one angle, then you take a step or two another direction, and you can kind of get it from a little different vantage point, you know? But I believe that Romans 8.28 is about God always acts in our best interest. And that's true when we begin the Christian life. It's true in the middle of our Christian life. It's true at the end of our Christian life. It'll be true forever. God always acts in our best interest. Now, for those of us that are parents... There have been times when we thought we were acting in our children's best interest. 
But maybe we didn't. Maybe we were not. That can never be said of God. He always acts in our best interest. His special providence. I love to refer to providence as a provable, non-provable proposition. It's provable in the fact that the Bible teaches it. It's provable in the fact that God acts in our lives. But when, here's where it's non-provable. I believe that God brought Sheree and me together. I believe that a number of years ago, God brought our family to Westside. But if I were asked to prove that, how do I go about it? I can only base it on the fact that God provides for His own. And He always has our best interest at heart. That's something to cling to when life gets hard here. Now look at verse 29 and 30. Notice how verse 28 ended. And are the called according to... What? His, what? His purpose. You might want to circle that word purpose. Because now he goes into explaining the great purpose of God. Talk about a guarantee of glory. We can realize right now in real time that God has an eternal purpose and it will come to fruition. It will be brought to completion. Because it's based on the very character of God who cannot lie. Titus 1 and verse 2, Hebrews 6 verses 18 and 19. And notice that verse 29 begins with a little bitty word. After purpose in Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.29, what's the first word you have in your translation? For or since or because. And then what he does is give a sweeping view of the purpose of God eternally concerning our salvation. And, and if you have five unshakable convictions in verse 28, you've got five unassailable affirmations. Five words. Here they are. Those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those that He called, He justified. Those that He justified, He glorified. Five unassailable affirmations. And it's as if He deals with our salvation. The God who has our best interest at heart deals with our salvation from eternity past. 
foreknowledge, predestination. He deals with it to the present, called, justified. And he deals with it in the future, glorified. And he speaks of the whole thing as if it were in the past tense. He looks at the whole range of salvation in the mind of God from beginning to end and speaks of it as as if it were in the past. It's not, of course. We await glorification, the ultimate glorification. But God's plan and purpose is so sure, Paul can view it that way. By the word foreknowledge or election, perhaps, put foreloved, foreknown, and foreloved us. Man was made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Man is unique, humanity is unique. And God loves us with a special love. Now think about this. God knows all things. God knows all things and yet He created this world with Certain laws, laws of nature. One cannot violate laws of nature and expect to come out alive. But how about the law of freedom of will? A lot of the things we suffer from life in life are due to the fact we live in a world that has been corrupted and tainted by sin. Isn't that true? And also we have to deal not only with our own wrong choices, but with the wrong choices of others and the impact that they may have on us. I want you to know That while God does all things, knows all things, God doesn't just stop the laws of nature. God doesn't just miraculously circumvent someone's freedom to make a decision. He may work providentially behind the scenes. I have no question about that. But there are people out there that believe that God, in His foreknowledge, the next term is what? What's the next term there in Romans 8, 29? What was it? Predestination. That there's really no difference in the two terms. And here's what people believe who are quite religious throughout this world. They believe that God is so sovereign that his foreknowledge demands 
that he determine who is saved and who is lost at the beginning. The problem with that is the Bible doesn't teach it here in Romans 8 or really anywhere else. As members of the church of Christ, we can, we must believe that God is sovereign. That He's the King, that He's the Master, that He knows all things. But I believe we can believe in the sovereignty of God and also believe that our God is so sovereign, is so great, and so awesome that He gives us freedom of will. That is an awfully big God. Can you explain that perfectly? How God can be so sovereign and so knowing of all And yet God does not violate the freedom of will that he gave to mankind. The idea of predestination is not unconditional. God predestined... And in his knowledge, he knows who will be saved. He predestined a way so the saved would be saved. The other idea is this. If God stamps Jeff there at the beginning of time as saved, there's nothing he can do about it. He's saved. But if he stamps Mike as lost... You've got a lost person that will never be able to be saved preaching to you at this very moment. You see, double predestination. Not only would he have stamped who's saved, he would have stamped at the beginning of time who's lost. And what does that do to evangelism? What does that do to freedom of will? What does that do to what follows? What follows in the list of five? This catalog, this sweeping catalog of five items that all come together talking about God saving us. What's next? Call. When you get a call, I've seen this here. When your phone's ringing, some of you are getting up really fast in the middle of a service to get out. Calls can be silenced or calls can be responded to. In Acts 2, the gospel call is proclaimed and 3,000 come to Christ on that day. In Acts 16, Paul has a vision The Macedonian call, it's called. Acts 16, 1 through 10. Come on over to Macedonia and help us. Paul responds to the call. And the gospel is planted on European soil. Look in your Bible at 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. We were chosen, predestined through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth when we responded to the call of 
the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14. Those that he called, he justified. He made right with God. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Being justified freely by His grace, Romans 3, 24 through 26. And friends, what this deals with is this. Not only does God pronounce not guilty, God says there's no evidence of the crime being committed. How awesome the blood of Jesus is. Not only does it make us not guilty, but the sin and iniquity God remembers what? No more. Hebrews 8 verses 6 through 13. No more. He justifies. It is God that justifies, Romans 8, 34, 33 through 35. And if justified, glorified. Now here's something I want you to see. Because it ties in God's providence... And God's eternal purpose, Romans 8, 28, Romans 8, 29, and 30. You and I have a really limited perspective about what's good. Adam, I think what's good is what's for my comfort. What's for my convenience. What is for my material gain or physical gain in some way? God always has our best interest at heart, but it's not just for our personal comfort or convenience or material gain personally or physical gain personally. Look at Romans 8.29. God's providence and purpose is number one to conform us to the image of His Son. Y'all see that? And throughout this life, we have the privilege and the blessing of seeking to be more and more like Jesus. It may not be for my comfort or convenience or my physical or material gain. But if it conforms me or conforms you more to Christ, it is for our good. Secondly, so that the firstborn can bring Many. The firstborn, the idea of the status, the position, the preeminence is Christ. 
But the firstborn just naturally implies the secondborn, the thirdborn, and so on we go. To conform us to the image of God's Son. And so that we might be the firstborn. He's the firstborn of many. See Romans 8, 17. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When Jesus came to this world, when the Lord came here, the incarnation, when God became man, Jesus got a body. He was flesh and blood. When you and I, as looking to the firstborn, now, Jesus, we want to be more and more glorified in us, but I'll tell you what, the time will come when, like Jesus, we will have a glorified body. And we'll be in His presence forevermore. No more sickness. No more sin. No more aging. No more death. I'd say Romans 8 is a great chapter, wouldn't you? I would say to anybody that if you want to know why you ought to become a Christian, if you can't find enough motivation and incentive just in Romans chapter 8, if you can't find the incentive, then maybe the problem is with your own obstinate and stubborn heart and not with the mercy and grace of God and Jesus. If you need to respond to Him in faith and repentance and baptism, do so this very day, this very hour. And for those of us who are Christians, maybe we wonder where God is. We do not always know why God does what He does, but we know that He always has our best interest at heart, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof of that. Amen? Let us stand and sing.